0: This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa podcast. Have you ever asked yourself, do Republican lawmakers think that what they're doing is good for the American people? Do they imagine that a steady stream of lies and propaganda will enlighten us? Do they want January 6th insurrectionists to be brought to justice? Well, the answers are no, no, and no. Of all the things that January 6th was, it was definitely not a violent terrorist attack, it wasn't an insurrection, an outbreak of mob violence, a forgettably minor outbreak by recent standards. You see people walking around and taking pictures. They don't look like terrorists, they look like tourists. So it's no surprise that Kevin McCarthy, the weakest speaker of the house in our history, has endangered the safety of Congress by providing access to all the January 6th security footage to the insurrectionists and their legal teams. Nope, no surprise at all. McCarthy made promises to get that job, and now, it's payback time. Last week, McCarthy gave right-wing propagandist, Fucker Carlson, exclusive access to the footage. And this week, he's giving it to known terrorists who have it out for our government terrorists who literally shit on the floor of the Capitol building and then smeared it on the walls I mean these guys are now privy to surveillance video so next time that they stage a coup maybe they'll succeed. For McCarthy it is just the latest example of him capitulating to the demands of the extremists who dominate his conference and it comes at the expense of the safety of everyone at the Capitol. Lawmakers, staff Capitol Police and yet all of these facts that you just heard have not stopped Republicans from continuing to play the victim card with the FBI, despite the fact that all of the evidence shows that the Justice Department and the FBI have bent over backwards for years and years to accommodate Trump and his supporters at every turn. The Dominion voting machine lawsuit against Fox News has opened up a can of worms that has quickly become bigger than Rupert and Lachlan Murdoch bigger than all the Fox hosts and their fraudulent guests. And why? Because you can't put these worms back in the can. The truth is out, making Fox vulnerable not just to the left, but to all of their enemies on the right as well. And if you don't think that Newsmax and OAN will use this information to pick off some of Fox News's audience, well, you're sorely mistaken. But out of
1: everything we learned about Fox News, there was one text that came out in Discovery that truly freaked me out. It's when Tucker Carlson said Fox News had to be more supportive of Donald Trump's election claims.
0: Tucker Carlson wrote his producer, Alex Pfeiffer. Do the executives understand how much credibility and trust we've lost with our audience? We're playing with fire for real. An alternative like Newsmax could be devastating to us.
1: Do you understand what he's saying here? He's saying, if I don't say this bullshit, my viewers will leave me. This whole time, we thought Fox News was manipulating its viewers. But it turns out the viewers were manipulating
0: Fox News. Now, details of the insidious relationship between Fox and the Trump administration make me want to fucking vomit. Their mutual goal was to create a sort of group psychosis that would hypnotize the right into believing whatever the fuck they wanted them to believe. And to promote their fascist agenda, their alternative facts, propaganda, and whatever else made the audience want to keep tuning in. The Dominion lawsuit is a massive story, which is why Fox News isn't covering it. In fact, if you go to their website and search the past two months for the words Dominion Voting Systems, you don't get an article, not a single article. You just get a page that says, arrow 404, journalism not foul. There was a contract between the Trump administration and the military stating that Fox News would be the only news shown on military bases. And how many angry vets did we see roaming the halls of Capitol Hill looking to kill Nancy Pelosi? And the answer, yeah, lots. So go ahead and connect the dots. There is a direct correlation between Fox news and the violence
2: on January 6th, all this shit about the, Oh, the Trump campaign was spied on by the Obama administration, the Trump campaign was spied on. turns out to be total bullshit, but what co- also comes out in the testimony is that Rupert Murdoch himself sat down and colluded with the Trump campaign by giving Jared Kushner copies of Biden's commercials. Prior them to them being aired. broke his own contract with the Biden administration, handed over that in uh, the Biden campaign, handed over that shit so that Trump could have pre-canned trolls and responses ready for the social media, for social media and whatnot. Totally spied on the Biden campaign and colluded with Fox News.
0: And not stunningly, the entertainment shows disguised as news of Fox, they're just not motivated by a political agenda, but by money and by ratings and more money. And while pretending to be speaking for the little guy in the heartland, like the vet, the cop, the average Joe, the Dominion lawsuit spells out what we already know. And what's that? That Fox News is a grift and its victims are the right-wing lemmings who watch them. And after years of anti-intellectualism, which, I mean, they've rebranded as now anti-woke, that made keeping their audience stupid, it made it easy. As Ted Koppel famously said to Sean Hannity, you have attracted an audience that is more interested in ideology than in facts.
2: What do you got to say about that? Fox lied to you, we told you they lied to you, when they tried to tell you the truth, you got so mad you made them lie to you again.
0: Now there's so much evidence to show that Tucker, Hannity and the bland One all knew fact from fiction, but that they went with the fiction instead. Now they may have hated Trump or felt that it was terrible for the country, but on air, what did they do? They still sang his fucking praises. Paul Ryan, I mean, you remember the former Speaker of the House. Well, he slid from Congress to the Board of Directors. Where? Of course, at Fox News. I mean, folks, you can't make this shit up. Anyway, six days after the Capitol riot, I mean, six whole days after the riots, in an exchange email, Ryan told Murdoch that some high percentage of Americans thought that the election was stolen from Trump because of the right-wing media. I mean, no shit, Sherlock. Rupert Murdoch then responds to Ryan, thanks Paul, wake up call for Hannity has been privately disgusted by Trump but was scared to lose viewers, and I end quote. They all knew and they all lied. And in my opinion, Dominion has one hell of a case and I pray that they take Murdoch, Fox and the whole fucking Fox News lineup down with them just like the Titanic.
1: People, it's time. For America to be able to move past that big lie and an important step would be those who know it was a big lie to publicly repudiate
0: it. Now over in the House of Representatives shit just keeps getting weirder. In just one week James Comer lamented not being able to prosecute the late Bo Biden.
3: Comments that he made uh, and uh, it says a lot about
1: the chairman which is not good, by the way.
0: I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene got pissed off and then blamed Biden's border policies for a July 2020 tragedy. I mean, July 2020? Remember when Marjorie Taylor Greene was yelling, liar,
1: liar,
3: Biden's a liar. (laughs) I'm
0: gonna be good. And Matt Gates accidentally cited China's Communist Party propaganda to attack USA to Ukraine. I mean, seriously, you can't make this shit up. I was watching it and I was saying to myself, is this fucking guy for real? I mean, Matt Gates was summarily shut down by a Pentagon official after trying to introduce said Chinese propaganda as a credible source during a congressional hearing. The model Florida man introduced the ultra-nationalist Global Times. I mean, not to be mistaken for the equally fake Epic Times tabloid during a hearing where he argued for the United States to stop aiding Ukraine. And guess what? it didn't go well for gates the global times investigative report that uh,
1: indicate that talks about training it's uh, from the atlantic council's digital forensics research
0: lab uh, citing that the azov battalion was even getting stuff as far back as 2018
3: without objection so
2: ordered any reason to disagree with that assessment doctor is this
1: the i'm sorry is this the global times from china
3: no
2: this is well
1: that's what you read
0: Yeah,
1: it might be. Yeah. Would that be a reason? Uh, as a general matter, I don't take Beijing's propaganda. No, no. Yeah. But just tell me if
0: the, if the allegation is true or false. I mean,
1: Uh, I don't have any evidence one way or the other as a general matter. I don't take Beijing's propaganda.
0: And this is a follow up. But remember, remember then that John McCain called out Rand Paul as a Russia asset. Well, he wasn't just saying that in jest. No, the Rands and now several generations of Rands are owned by the Russians. Now, there's lots of evidence to support my claim, but there's this. Jesse Benton, a longtime aide to both Ron and Rand Paul, who's also married to Ron Paul's granddaughter, was sentenced on Friday to 18 months in prison.
3: So I repeat again, the senator from Kentucky is now working for Vladimir Putin.
0: The story goes that he and another GOP operative accepted $100,000 from Roman Vasilenko, a Russian influencer who wanted photos with Trump to show off on social media. Benton kept most of the money for himself, but managed to donate $25,000 of it to the RNC. Meanwhile, Vasilenko gets his selfies with Trump. I mean, it should have all been good, but foreign nationals like vasilenko they're just not allowed to donate to United States political campaigns. And more importantly, it is fucking illegal to make a donation on behalf of someone else. At Benton's sentencing hearing, U.S. District Court Judge Trevor McFadden, who by the way happens to be a Trump appointee, has also been criticized for being too easy on the January 6th defendants. Anyway, so Judge McFadden says to Benton, and I quote, Sir, I will tell you, frankly, it's difficult for me to read your letter talking about your integrity and faith with your pattern of deception. And so it goes, apparently, all the polls are, are all about the Russian money. And during one of the House Oversight's witch hunts, Representative Steve Cohen, now I just wanna be clear, no relation to me, but he is a great guy, actually called out Jim Jordan, because Jordan has no plans to investigate abuses at the Justice Department, no shock here, during the Trump administration. I mean, just whatever has happened since Biden took office, and only since Biden took office. Well, when Mr. Cohen was in jail, the administration decided
1: to put him in, in, in lockup. Uh They put him back in jail when he was out because he was going to publish a book, and they wanted him not to speak and enrich his First Amendment rights. And then they put him in solitary confinement, and they did everything they could through the Justice Department. It's come out. It was the Justice Department that did that. Could we go, Mr. Chair, back into those issues and look at the weaponization that occurred during the Trump era, particularly that Michael Cohen incident? That's the one that galls me. A guy went to jail because he worked for Donald Trump and he did what Donald Trump t- told him to do to cover up the payments to Stormy Daniels. That have all kind of other ramifications. Can we go back into that and
0: these rules? So Tuesday, Democrats argued that a rules package offered by Republicans was cut and pasted from the right-wing eco-chamber and that it was full of racist tropes. I've been concerned about the weaponization of the federal government program, Cohen said, and I think it was pretty clear during the previous administration Former Trump attorney Michael Cohen, yep, that's me, went to jail for doing what Donald Trump asked him to do. Donald Trump was called individual number one, and he didn't go to jail. He didn't even go to jail when the administration changed and Merrick Garland came in. So here, take a listen to Cohen schooling Jordan on the real weaponization of the Justice Department.
1: But you do remember he went to jail. You do remember, remember that, he, that, too. that he went out and they put him back in when he was gonna publish a book because they wanted him to, to, to not comment on it. And you do remember that when they put him back in jail, they put him in solitary confinement.
3: Don't, know that, all of, I, don't, I, don't I don't recall the details about well, that. Then that's what I do I... recall is what he said in front of Congress and he said all kinds of things that weren't accurate.
1: But Mr. Jordan, that's why I ask, should we not be able to study that because you don't know it? I know it, it's clearly out there in the public sector. I've read it so many places and it's been shown that the federal government and Barr did it.
0: Shouldn't we study what? that? that That's weaponization. And lastly, March is Women's History Month and I think people everywhere will appreciate Sarah Silverman's take on WOKE. Mate during her recent turn as guest host on The Daily Show, Miss Silverman spoke some truth that I think we all need to hear.
1: Woke for the right is really just an umbrella term so that they don't have to say specifically that they're pieces of shit. Like, it feels cooler to say, I'm not woke than the truth, which is I'm terrified of what I don't understand and I only know how to process that as anger because I can't look inward. To wit.
0: And now for the main event. Today we welcome back to our show a very special guest, John Dean. For those of you who lived through Watergate, his name is synonymous with the political intrigue of the 1970s. John Dean served as White House counsel for President Richard Nixon from July of 1970 until April of 1973. Now in that position, he became deeply involved in events leading up to the Watergate burglaries and the subsequent scandal and cover-up. Referred to as the master manipulator of the cover-up by the FBI, Dean's testimony before the House was watched by some 80 million Americans. John was granted immunity when by laid out in stunning detail and intricacy how the president not only knew about, but orchestrated the break-in and burglary of the DNC. He ultimately was sentenced to one year in federal prison, but emerged from the experience as a changed and soulful individual. Dean renounced his former politics and started a second life as an author and a speaker. He's penned five books about Watergate and ten books in total, including his most recent tome, Authoritarian Nightmare, Trump and His Followers. John Dean is now the last man standing from that era. He is the last connection between the nation's authoritarian past and its present. The difference being, Dean thought none of this would ever happen again. Well, as we all know, it did. So let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so John, during the January 6th hearings, you compared Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony to the moment in 1973 when Alexander Butterfield revealed in a Senate hearing that Richard Nixon had been using a secret taping system. And you said, and I quote, Cassidy met the Butterfield standard, but with instant gratification. Would you do me a favor and take a moment to discuss the similarities and differences between January 6th and Watergate?
3: Well, obviously, the the big difference uh, (laughs) is the the length and breadth of the scandal. Watergate was a much bigger scandal, much more protracted. It was very slow to develop into a scandal, Uh, whereas January 6th sort of was born on January 6th because of the events describing the, uh, the situation, while Watergate was provoked by a bungled burglary, it really wasn't a scandal in the, in the early months. Uh, it was a local Washington story, it was handled by the metro section. The national press did not pick it up uh, until almost six months later, seven months later, when those who had been arrested at the Watergate uh, were on trial. That's when the rest of the media sort of began to, uh, to look at it, long after the election. For example, I, I became friendly with George McGovern, who was the person who ran against Richard Nixon in 1972 after the arrests at the Watergate. And he told me, He said, John, he said, I couldn't get three journalists to sit still for five minutes to talk about Watergate during the entirety of the campaign. And he said, We tried. We tried to focus on what this meant, its implications. Uh, We were pretty convinced that it was bigger than it looked, and no one was interested. So that makes the point, one, that you don't have a scandal until the media is interested. And Uh, You do have a scandal when they are interested. And they were almost instantly interested for good reason uh, in January 6th because of the implications. This was a threat to democracy. Watergate was not the same kind of threat. It was a president exceeding his powers, taking uh, the attitude he later expressed as, as a former president. When the president does it, that means it's not illegal. Uh, That's an interesting philosophy for the chief executive who takes an oath to to, uh, uphold the law and and, uh, uh, to enforce it. But anyways, there is. So there's a substantive difference. But during Watergate, other than yours, truly, no one broke rank uh, until Butterfield did. And Butterfield was not implicated in any way in criminal behavior. Uh, he had installed the taping system, and it was, the, it was the ultimate inside secret of the Nixon presidency. Cassidy Hutchinson uh, was of that significance. She broke the code of silence between uh, she wasn't implicated in any wrongdoing, but she thought she need, had an obligation to tell and explain the wrongdoing she was aware of and did so and was very articulate. I think the testimony of Cassidy before the January 6th committee was pretty limited. I think they agreed that they would just focus on January 6th. The The, the indications are from the forewoman of the grand jury in Georgia is that she was a great witness down there where she probably uh, gave broader information about the whole scheme to overturn uh, the the election by Trump and company. But uh, we'll have to see on that.
0: Yeah. So like like Butterfield, right? Like Alexander Butterfield, yes. Cassidy Hutchinson is really part of the process that raised the former president's legal jeopardy. Because prior to that, right, the taping system in the Oval Office, uh, I mean, that basically changed the trajectory of the Watergate scandal and was obviously a major part of the 1974 Nixon resignation, if I'm not mistaken.
3: Well, it, it was. It became, a, a, as a result of my testimony, the question was, who was telling the truth? Was it yours truly or Richard Nixon? And Nixon denied everything I had testified to that implicated him, as did the others. Uh I wasn't aware of the taping system, but I suspected it, and so I testified in kind of a bootstrapping bit of testimony that I thought I had been recorded. It was the result of them asking whether or not I was way off the mark in saying I thought in one or more conversations I had been testified, that they asked Butterfield that question at the staff level initially, uh, when he was just sort of a routine we're checking who knows what, and uh, Alex's answer was, "I wish you hadn't asked that question." <laughs> because he, he told his wife, he said, "If they ask me, uh, I'm going to I'm going to testify truthfully," which he did. Uh, they did that on a Friday the thirteenth, and on Monday the sixteenth of July, they had him in front of the committee, and that indeed did change the whole trajectory of the Watergate investigation because after that. I had certainly given the prosecutor's probable cause uh, on everybody I had mentioned, and they went with that and uh, immediately went to get used that that my conversations or my testimony about the tapes as a basis for a subpoena to go after the tapes. And the rest, of course, is history. They would ultimately get them, and when they did get them, uh, it would force Nixon's resignation. And I think, you know, a lot of people think it's because they had such a solid case against Nixon that it was inevitable. I, I'm i not sure that's the case. I think, it was, I think that Nixon said he had lost his support on Capitol Hill because he was caught in a huge lie. Uh, he was that. But more importantly, what happened is when the tapes came out, his staff realized they were in a whole heap of trouble. This is the second round of the cover-up. I had been involved in the first round of the cover-up. This is a whole new crew that could be indicted for obstruction of justice if they uh, did anything to help him, you know, prevent the investigation from going forward. And by that time, they knew he was guilty of sin. So uh, his staff really deserted him. And I think he realized that. And the only way to handle it was to resign. He it was he couldn't mount a defense. His lawyer uh, asked, said, listen, you have made re- misrepresentations to me, which I've in turn made to the House impeachment inquiry. He said, I want to correct that's, those statements, which this guy, uh, his name was Sinclair, went up and then corrected the record in front of the. House Judiciary Committee. So Nixon just, the air just went out of all of his defense at that point when the Supreme Court said, yes, he had to turn over the tapes.
0: Yes, but you see the difference, though, of course, is in the case of Nixon, there were tapes and he was willing to turn them over. Hutchinson, you know, with Donald, is obviously a very different scenario. We're talking about mens rea. We're talking about the intent that Donald had, um, That, of course, he's going to lie and he's going to claim that he was never going to the Capitol. He's not the one that wanted them to do it. But I read an interesting paragraph in The Intercept, where it says Hutchinson, a former aide to Mark Meadows, Trump's White House chief of staff, showed that the president knew that many of his supporters who marched on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th of 2021 were armed and dangerous and still encouraged them to march on Congress. He even sought to go to the U.S. Capitol himself to lead the armed mob in person and lunged at a Secret Service agent to try to take control of his presidential limousine. You know, this is very damning. It's it's damning in the sense that it's damning if it was a Miniseries, or if it was a movie, you know what I mean? It's still leaves open. It's not the same type of testimony that Alexander Butterfield was able to do, whereby stating, you know, that he had installed and that he was aware of this taping system. It's, it's obviously one is existence of the tapes. It's existence of the taping machine. The other is a perspective. How do you think that that ends up panning out?
3: Well, I think that what Cassidy did is she showed, uh, she was a witness to his intent and his mentality during January 6th. Uh, It's, of course, he said, she said. He can deny all that. She can't get inside his his mind. Uh, But she's opened the door for other witnesses who I'm sure the special prosecutor, Jack Smith, has now interviewed uh, to learn much more about that intent. Uh, you know, we, the January 6th committee merely opened the door. Uh, and that's all Butterfield really did. He didn't have the substance of what was on those conversations. He just really said, here's a way, uh, you can find out who's telling the truth. And the, uh, you know, Given the number of tapes that actually existed of Nixon, uh, where he is talking about Watergate and Watergate-related matters, when well, I later did a book on the subject, I mean, decades later, there were some 1,000 conversations where he's talking about Watergate. You know, they're as brief as a minute or so to one that's eight hours long, uh, where he's listening to tapes of his conversations with me. <laughs> I mean, it's just a... <laughs> Bizarre, but anyway, when I when I actually cataloged all the conversations, there are roughly one thousand conversations that were recorded that he is talking about Watergate. We have about a dozen uh, before he resigned, and it took decades for those conversations to come out. Uh, some of them were the numbers increased by the time uh, after he resigned. The government got. Uh, about seventy conversations, uh, but it was he spent his natural lifetime fighting the res- release of his conversations and did so fairly effectively. It's not until after he dies that we get all of the all of the conversations. So will Trump ever uh, open up? No, of course not. It's not in any public man's uh, uh, best interest to tell, these stories. But I I think what Cassidy did is she opened the door uh, and showed there was a reason for them to call other witnesses because there was this behavior with with the, uh, the devices used to screen the crowd as to whether or not they were armed. Uh, there are obviously other people who are aware of all that process. Trump was doing it for cosmetic reasons. He wanted a good shot on the mall on January 6th um so th- this is the, he, she's a door opener she's not a she's not a uh she's like Butterfield I, I find a parallel I, they are ones who show prosecutors where they can get the evidence
0: yeah you know that's why of course um Smith is now subpoenaing Jared and Ivanka who knows whether or not Donald will even allow them to testify and not you know he
3: call upon executive privilege he, it's not his privilege to invoke uh, it is Joe Biden's privilege to invoke, and he's already waived it. So it's interesting. I hear the, the commentary in the media about will he let them testify or not. He may tell them, don't testify, invoke executive privilege, and that isn't, that's not a privilege they have or can invoke. The question is, will the, well, let's get to the Supreme Court, which has a very, very narrow area that they've never addressed. And that is, does a former president have any privilege after he leaves office? Uh, Harry Truman was the first president to ever invoke executive privilege after he left office. And he just said, I won't appear uh, in, before a, a, t- a committee investigating uh, tax fraud during his presidency. He said, I won't even honor uh, the committee to come and and testify about that. And that, that held up. And that was sort of the the lure for a long time it's never uh, kavanaugh is the only justice who's really addressed this in some dicta of one of the one of the recent uh executive privilege cases and he said uh along with thomas i believe they said they want if they believe this issue should be addressed so you know are there uh, are there five votes there i don't know but that's something we may find out if uh Trump tries, who's willing to litigate anything just to slow things down, uh, indeed takes this to uh, the mat and tries to enforce and block uh, Jared and Ivanka from testifying.
0: You know, my heart actually goes out to Cassidy because I understand the position better than anybody that she was put in. And as I was reading this article from The Intercept, this one paragraph really sort of hit true to home. And it says, Hutchinson reportedly found herself in an uncomfortable position where, at the urging of a Trump team-provided attorney, she had not been particularly forthcoming when first interviewed by committee staffers. She had been urged to focus on protecting Trump and giving as few details as possible. She had been both bribed and threatened to induce her cooperation with Team Trump. And as a consequence, she realized that she had misled the committee in her testimony. Well, that's exactly what I ended up having to plead guilty to that 1,001 violation to. The number of times that I allegedly spoke to Donald about the failed real estate project in Moscow, the Trump Tower Moscow project. And where did that all come from? Well, Trump team provided attorneys as well as all of the various Trump team attorneys. I mean, I feel sorry for her because you get put into a position where You don't want to betray the guy who you're working for, but then when it ultimately, and they call it the mirror test, when you have to look at yourself in the mirror and see how the world and how history is going to judge you, well, you ultimately take a different turn and look, look at the turn, look at the turn that... I have now, you know, ended up providing eight different congressional committees, New York attorney general, district attorney cases, the case that now has Alan Weisselberg uh, in Rikers Island. You know what? There's been some accountability, but not nearly enough.
3: Agreed. Uh, It it is a very difficult situation for a staffer to be forced to these situations by a superior uh, I think that you know clearly uh, Cassidy was uncomfortable uh, we know from her testimony in the arrangement that had been made for her and uh, it was the it was I think Liz Cheney who's the one who spotted the the difficulty and uh, as a result of that, she got a different lawyer she got uh, Jody Hunt who is a not an experienced criminal lawyer, but at least I probably has some in his firm with him, and uh, is doing it pro bono, and got him got her out of the clutches of of Trump. Now, Michael, we haven't heard the end of the of the efforts to sway Cassidy Hutchinson. I suspect that's front and center with Jack Smith and his investigation because they they're looking at the whole issue of Trump paying for. Counsel for witnesses—that's what was the nightmare at Watergate—and became this became the core of the cover-up. When when I first learned that they were going to pay uh, the Cuban Americans and uh, give them a defense money, I had you know it didn't strike me as I'd never heard of obstruction of justice at that time. Uh, Watergate would put obstruction of justice on the map, but it wasn't until. They they had been paying quite a while until I realized this is this is a really bad arrangement and dangerous. I thought first when Howard Hunt called Chuck Colson, who'd gotten him a job at the White House and later over at the re-election committee, and was demanding money, or he, they were going to talk. That's when it clicked to me that this is this is hush money. This isn't a defense fund. So I think that's the question they'll have to look at. Uh, with Trump's arranging uh, and his campaign arranging for all these witnesses to have paid counsel. It, is just, it just invites uh, obstruction. So we haven't heard the end of that. I agree
0: with you. Let me ask you this then, because we now know that not even Fox News or any of their hosts believe the lies that they were telling about the 2020 election. But the problem is that the public doesn't seem to get what's really going on here. My question to you, John, is how long did it take for people to believe the Watergate allegations? And what was the turning point when the facts of the case became common knowledge? It took a long time. The public, it's kind of
3: frightening uh, how slow the public is uh, to change their perception of, of a, a person, and some never will. When Nixon left office, there were still 23 to 25% of the American people who thought he'd done nothing wrong. Uh, the rest of the public had slowly gotten educated. Even uh, the House impeachment inquiry, Republicans were slow to turn. Uh, they were aware of all of the charges I had made. They were aware of all of the uh, the problems with that presidency but they were very reluctant to take on their president. So it is a process that uh, plays itself out. It's, it's you know, given the divided nature of our politics, it's just taking much longer right now. And maybe some people will never believe Trump has done anything wrong. Others will begrudgingly accept it and let the process work its way out. But it's one of the problems with democracy. Uh, we don't do a lot of critical thinking as citizens and it's uh, the prospect you know the democracy doesn't work well without critical thinking but we don't do it and we don't even teach civics anymore so it, it 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 invites uh trouble when you have somebody who is corrupt to the core like a donald crump trump
0: it is donald Trump, but more importantly than that you know, I, we have some guests that are constantly on the show and they do a lot of trolling uh, of individuals at various different Trump rallies or at Trump events. And what boggles my mind is the fact that these, that there's a whole slew of individuals that to this day will tell you that Donald Trump is the president. It's not Joe Biden. And when asked, except who's in the White House right now, they'll tell you that that doesn't really matter. The guy who's pulling all the strings on everything is Donald Trump. And I scratch my head and I say to myself, what the fuck are they talking about? Where are they getting this knowledge from, John? You know, you were at least were fortunate enough in the day when, when this was all happening, uh, you know, Watergate and Nixon and so on. They were what? 15 maybe 20 legitimate newspapers and that was it that's where you got your information from now you get it from instagram from facebook from tiktok you get it which is chinese owned you get it from you know you get it from whatever station that you choose to listen to that is clearly swayed one way or the other but it's really the instant one two three um pushing of the Information, or the misinformation, or the disinformation, or the malinformation that makes this whole thing so difficult, and it makes it so much worse than what you had to experience going back into the early seventies. It it was
3: uh, it was a slow process in the seventies. It is obviously a much slower process today. And you're right; you put your finger on on the difference. We didn't have social media. Uh, back in the early 70s, uh, he didn't have Fox News. In fact, Nixon is one of the ones who is the originator of the concept of having a right-wing uh, cable organization. He got Roger Ailes, who later would be the key to building up Fox, in the Oval Office with Chuck Colson, his, his, uh, uh, his hatchet man. And they plotted what would later become Fox News. Realizing how, if the conservatives had a uh, a force in the in the public uh, domain, if you will, that that would that would be to the benefit of Republicans and conservatives, and that's indeed what it it did do. It it no one, I think, in fact, early days of Fox are very different than Fox is today, because you put your finger also on that affidavit that was in the. Dominion defamation case. I mean, it's just horrific stuff. Their discovery produced showing they just outright lie on Fox News. I mean, there's just no no question. Behind the scenes, they will say, "Oh, this you know, obviously there is no fraud in this election." How far can they push this? And then they'll turn around and get on the air and push it. So uh, that kind of dishonesty has found channels to reach public and a gullible public and feed them the information they need to live in their illusions of how the world operates uh, it, it is their confirming biases uh, writ large for them so they can live comfortably in the in the alternate universe they've selected it's it's really not a healthy situation for democracy.
0: No, it's not. Now, John, you've been very vocal about your criticism of Bush and the Iraq war. How do you feel about America's support of Ukraine now? I mean, because Biden has put a lot on the line to help protect NATO countries from Putin, and it's cost him here at home. Should we be so invested in Ukraine? And if so, why?
3: Well, I think a much different situation. Ukraine, if we don't help Ukraine defend itself against Russia uh, in Ukraine, uh, we're going to, the, the war will move on to uh, Europe and soon it'll be on our shore. And today uh, wars are much different than they were uh, even 10 years ago. So I, th- I think it, you know, Putin uh, will be emboldened if he wins this war. Uh, others, China, uh Xi may be emboldened if we don't defend democracy uh, around the world when it's not able to defend itself. So it, it's a, uh, where do we want to fight them? Uh, on our, in South Carolina and North Carolina and Florida and Georgia when they invade? Or do we want to do it in Ukraine? I, I would pick uh, Ukraine as, as the place to solve this problem and show Putin he doesn't have the, you know, clearly he does not have a war machine. He has a stumbling, bumbling, uh, on-the-fly army that probably can be defeated. The question is, is he uh, so distorted in his perception of the world that he'll go nuclear? We don't know the answer to that. We certainly hope that isn't the case. Uh, but I, it will be a... Uh, uh, it'll be a one-time experiment for him because if he starts sending his new uh, new missiles, warheads, uh, that will change the world totally forever.
0: Yeah, look, I'm not so sure that the way people are describing Putin that he's now has dementia. It's funny how every time that somebody does something that you don't like, they turn and they say, oh, that... I've heard, I've even heard them turn around and say that he has some sort of a sexually transmitted disease. And, like, for example, with syphilis is a direct result, you end up with dementia, or that he has mercury poisoning, which gives you what's called the Mad Hatter's disease, where you go crazy. I mean, I hear all of this crazy shit, and I see it on, you know, again, on these various different uh, media sites that are going on. Putin is not crazy. Putin is over his skis. He did not think that Ukraine was going to be as formidable as they are. He did not think that the United States was going to, along with our NATO allies, supply Ukraine with enough weaponry in order to keep Russia at bay, which they have done. Unfortunately, to a significant loss of life, on both sides. I feel sorry for these Russian soldiers that have no choice. They get a you know, they get a letter, you know, from the Kremlin saying, Hey, pack your shit, you're heading off to Ukraine and you're fighting a war that you probably, like Vietnam, you don't believe in, but you have no choice, especially not in Putin's Russia, if you want to stay and if your family wants to stay. So these poor dopes end up having to go over there, and they're giving up all over the place. They're walking away from their own tanks, from their own trucks, lighting that shit on fire, or just abandoning it in and of itself. So, you know, this, again, I don't believe that Putin is out of his mind. Uh, I think he certainly believed that it was going to be a much easier victory. And what should this really tell not just the United States and our NATO allies, but the rest of the world? That we had a false perspective and a false impression of Russia and Russia's military capabilities. They truly don't have it. I mean, in all fairness, it's almost like The United States fighting Canada and Canada holding off the United States, right? Because Ukraine really had a very small army. They have no armaments. If it wasn't for the United States and NATO allies providing them with the military equipment, this war would have been over much quicker.
3: Michael, in sifting through some of the intelligence reports that I have looked at, One of the things I think that has become apparent, we did not understand, we knew there was corruption in the Russian military. What we didn't realize is how much rot it had caused and permeated the whole uh, war machine that Putin thought he had. Uh, That's why we misjudged the capability of Russia to indeed come in and take uh big sections, if not overpower Ukraine uh, within days of starting their war. but they we quickly realized that the, 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 the corruption had really destroyed the machine. and so they were unable to do and and progress as people had perceived them. They while I had numbers, you know, apparently they've lost about a half million men. Uh, and they've created a killing machine for young Russians. It's uh, uh, those who are, are bright and knowledgeable are leaving the country. The best and the brightest of, of Russia are getting out, uh, both men and women. There's now conscription going on in the universities. So Putin is going to wipe out a whole generation of capable Russians He's, you know, he's going to. Dest- he is destroying the country. That will be his legacy. While he sees himself as the the heir to Peter the Great, uh, he's going to be Putin the Putz. Uh,
0: it's it's really a shame because had he not done this, and had our relationship with Russia not been as strained as as it's unfortunately becoming, and so on, you know, they really could have created a much better economy for all Russians, not for just the handful of oligarchs that seem to be flying out of windows, you know, committing suicide and also, you know, uh, turning their vehicles over down embankments, you know, that Russia could have been a real player in the world stage, instead of being this pariah. Which brings me to my question. You know, measuring, obviously, the recent events in Ukraine, and which, of course, is now straining the relationship with Russia, as well as now China, how do you see this world order shaking out when all of this is said and done? Because this is not
3: going to end tomorrow. I don't know the exit ramp. If I knew that, I would certainly write about it and share it. Uh, I don't think anybody knows what the exit ramp is at this point. Uh, they realize that Putin uh, is got a lot of face in this now, and he wants to save that face. So uh, it is going to be protracted. And I think if we do not get Ukraine armed in and fully armed, with the with the best equipment we can get to them and train them on quickly uh that Russia is going to get more of a foothold in their neighbors uh landmass and you know what what we need to be doing is countering and pushing them out of Ukraine and then out of Crimea Crimea uh and doing it sooner rather than later so i think this spring and summer are going to tell us very soon what what's going to happen and how protracted Ukraine is going to become. And I don't think it's good for anybody that it be a an extended war or a war of attrition. Uh, I don't think anybody can withstand another war of attrition.
0: Now, John, as White House counsel you you were once in the same position as Pat Cipollone, and you've asked him publicly to come forward and to speak about the events in and around January 6th. But to my knowledge, he's remained completely silent. Why do you think he's been so reticent to come forward?
3: I don't think he's remained completely silent. What he's tried to do is preserve his, his standing such as it may be, with the Trump admirers, uh, both those high and low, so that he's not seen as doing what I did, and that's turning on his president, when uh, he, you realize the president is doing very dangerous and uh, totally improper things. So he, he wants it both ways, and so far he's getting it. Uh, he what he, By that I mean... He is forcing the issue of whether he has a privilege or not, both executive privilege and attorney-client privilege. We don't know, because they're happening in front of the grand jury and the chief judge, uh, how much, how often he's been in front of that court, uh, the D.C. district court, court, and uh, Burl Howell, uh, who is handling these behind closed doors, but he's obviously been forced to testify, as has his deputies, and uh, the he did not testify in full before the January sixth committee, because he the committee just didn't want to take the time to try to undo the privilege. The grand jury, and I'm sure I'm sure that uh, Jack Smith is getting everything he needs because grand juries are very different in their ability—one to get everybody's testimony. And two, they have an enforcement procedure and proceedings, uh, like holding a witness in contempt uh, and throwing them in jail immediately if they uh, don't cooperate. So uh, I think the special counsel is getting that testimony. I think it's just, uh, you know, we have Ivanka and Jared now threatening to invoke executive privilege. Well, if they do, it won't hold up. Uh, Nixon versus United States is the case in point uh, where it's established that even the president of the United States, with invoking executive privilege, does not have that privilege against a grand jury seeking that information. And that's the situation here. Even if the court does find there is some sliver of privilege that a former president has, it's not going to hold up against the grand jury seeking that information, because grand juries have enormous powers to get the information they want. So let's talk about potential
0: indictments and so on. Obviously, I'm going to refer first to the Fulton County District Attorney, Fannie Willis. So, you know, she has indictments to make in this Trump election fraud case. I'd like to ask you, what are your predictions, assuming that indictments are forthcoming, and who do you think that she will indict, if anyone?
3: The, the, given the fact we have now had a uh, a tip from the F- Georgia Special Grand Jury Forewoman uh, as to the scope of the investigation and their recommendation that some twelve to fourteen people be indicted, it sounds like that uh, District Attorney. Will, Willis is going after uh, fraud in the not only in the uh, in the election, but in possibly the bogus uh, elector scheme as well. Uh, she's had 75 witnesses. That's a lot of witnesses way beyond just the election fraud. That has to involve also the bogus elector uh, issue as well. What I can't, what I'm scratching my head on, Michael, is whether she want she's going to proceed with what a lot of people think she would like to do, and that's a RICO case, a racketeering case, where they she shows that what Trump is engaging in is a pattern of criminal behavior that uh, ticks off all of the Georgia predicate acts to show racketeering, and that. That will place the case in its broadest context, where people will see that this was not just an isolated one-shot, let's-get-Georgia with two calls that he thinks are perfect, but rather a whole criminal scheme to corrupt the Georgia election. And Georgia was just part of a larger scheme. I hope she goes that way. Whether she will or not, I think that's what they're deciding right now. But uh I th- I'd say it's 50-50, a RICO case, uh, and if not a RICO case, it's certainly going to be a general conspiracy to commit fraud, to disrupt the Georgia elections, and probably the elector fraud case. So then,
0: assuming that indictments are made, and that Trump is on that list, how can we give a former president of the United States a fair trial? I mean, was that something that lawmakers considered when they figured out that Nixon was involved in criminal acts? Because, again, one of the things that Judge Jed Rakoff, and I quote him often, and I wish that he would have been the judge in my case because the outcome would have been very, very different. What you, what you end up having is, you know, there's, the prosecutors are more concerned about conviction than they are about prosecuting based upon the criminal act. And that's always a problem. So are they figuring this? Was this considered when Nixon was involved? And how do we end up with a fair trial against a former U.S. president that obviously has a base significant enough that one of these people could end up on the jury?
3: There's a short period in Watergate in which this issue is right at the front. And that is after Nixon resigns because of the the tapes and his uh, really loss of support on not of his own staff as well as on Capitol Hill, and the decision by the Watergate Special Prosecution force as to whether or not Trump, or excuse me Nixon should be prosecuted, uh, they actually, I have in my files, a draft of the indictment they had drawn up, uh, and they had a very solid obstruction of justice case against him. Uh, they just with what they had. Had they gotten more tapes, uh, uh, more that I looked at decades later, they would have realized he not only is involved in a conspiracy to obstruct justice, he's the leader of a conspiracy to suborn perjury uh, on a broad scale. Uh, and this is this surfaces in conversations I was totally unaware of, and secret calls he's making to people to uh, kind of brace them to to commit perjury. But anyway, uh, yes, the issue of whether Nixon could get a fair trial was the key factor in Leon Jaworski, then the special prosecutor, as to whether he could get whether he would indict, and the most effective document I saw in the entirety of the representation of Nixon was done by Jack Miller, who was the once the head of the criminal division of the Department of Justice, and he wrote a, a memo making a powerful case that Nixon could not get a fair trial. The law has evolved since then, and juries are, they're better at impaneling uh, juries where they address this issue during the voir dire, uh to see what the depth of knowledge of people might be and i think that you know in georgia for example you you take this grand juror who's out and about and she's somebody who had never heard the Rath- rathenberger call she had never she hadn't voted in the last two elections and so she's pretty naive and unknowledgeable uh but bright and and obviously enjoying herself with her media tour but uh, I think that, you know, you can find a jury, uh, even though the law says you have to protect the rights of people, that they can't have made predetermined decisions and then sit on a jury and convict uh, based on those uh, that knowledge. They have to make their decision based on the evidence that's presented them in the courtroom. But yes, it was a big issue, uh, but it was resolved, of course, when Jerry Ford, pardon Richard Nixon, and there was no question that he couldn't be uh, indicted at that point. Uh, some of the one of the things Leon Jaworski did it was kind of interesting. And I learned lo- many years after the fact is he solicited all the senior staff, all the lawyers, to write a memo uh, to him as to whether he should or should not prosecute Nixon, whether the office should go forward. And while there was an overwhelming sentiment to prosecute there was also an overwhelming concern about whether nick could get a fair trial and i'm not sure you know you know i'm not sure we'll ever resolve that issue and if it's going to happen it's going to happen more likely down in fulton county where they find jurors that can sit on a uh, on a jury and make a judgment of a former president because they really know nothing about all these activities. Most people don't follow this the way you and I do, Michael. So, so it's it, it. There is a possibility that, that can go forward, but obviously, if they don't, if they find a tainted jury, that will result result in a reversal if they convict. So, let's
0: just jump for a second to Merrick Garland because. Merrick Garland's been really slow to put together, right, the mass criminality of Trump's efforts to steal the 2020 election and a whole slew of other, you know, matters that have come before him. And just taking, for example, the the 2020 election, he finally ends up giving the job to Jack Smith, who now appears to be moving this case forward. But the real concern, and something that the Republicans and Trump in the messaging uh, has been, you know, just nonstop, is that the case cannot fizzle and that there has to be indictments, because if not, this will cause our democracy to suffer. Do we just move on? What do we do here, if, in fact, that they don't bring
3: any indictments? What happens then? I, I, You know, that's a pretty dire potential. I think a democracy is threatened if Garland doesn't go forward. Uh, And I think that might be one of the reasons he selected somebody like Jack Smith, who uh, has in the past waited where others were reluctant to go. He was in charge of the public integrity section when after sitting members of Congress and prosecuted them. Uh, lost a couple of those cases on technical grounds, uh, but he didn't shy away from uh, bringing the cases. I don't think we, so I think that uh, Merrick Garland has a special prosecutor that uh, when he sees conspicuous wrongdoing and can build a case where the evidence is beyond a reasonable doubt, he's going to pull the trigger and go. Uh, I fully expect Trump to uh, be indicted in Georgia, and I fully expect him to be indicted in uh, in, uh, in the federal cases, both the documents case in Mar-a-Lago, as well as the January 6th case. The case I'm most uh, reluctant to see going forward is your case in New York. I, th- you know, I have read uh, a good bit about that case. And I think that Bragg, uh, while he may have gotten, uh, been pushed too fast, too hard, too early when he first got in, has now got a problem. Uh, And, you know, I'm not sure you'll ever find yourself in court testifying about that, Michael.
0: So I would love to be able to tell you (laughs) more about it. I will only say to you, and I will say, of course, to my listeners out there, I still believe That the district attorney of New York's case is the case that is keeping Donald up at night the most. I think it is the easiest of all of the cases to prove. And I think it's the one case out of all of these cases that is predicated on documentary evidence that regardless whether Donald will, like with the Fulton County case, just get up and lie and say that he never intended it, so there's no mens rea. The same with the January 6th committee. I never intended for these people to go there. Regardless of how many other people, you could have 900 other people come up and say that Donald knew exactly what he was doing. Well, that's their opinion, and he'll throw all 900 of them under the bus. This case with the district attorney's office is predicated on facts, documents, text messages, emails, you know, corroborating testimony. I think it's the easiest one. I also think that it will be the first one to go out there and to indict Donald. And I think it's going to be it's going to be a shocker to you. Can he get
3: Weisselberg? As a oh, uh,
0: look, I don't think you even need Weisselberg. That's the beauty of the whole case. There are There's so much documentation that's there that this new district attorney... Look, I, like so many other people, were very angry and were very critical of Alvin Bragg. And I agree with you that maybe he was being pushed too hard, too fast, getting into the office. That maybe Cy Vance should have done the job and he should have, um, you know... Put forth an indictment the same way that they ended up doing it with the Weiselberg case. Okay, fine. It didn't happen that way, but I think Alvin Bragg, as I've said on television, I think the plane has taken off, and I think now it's heading, uh, you know, to make its juxtaposition in the air so that it heads in the direction that justice, you know, requires. That's my that's my opinion. Um, but we'll. We'll see who's right and who's wrong. It's a little bit of a disadvantage uh, in the fact that (laughs) I'm so closely connected to it that, um, again, I don't want to go into too much of the the detail, but I promise you um, the DA's case is much stronger than people know what they believe, and I think it's going to be uh, integral in stopping the um, Mandarin menace. So, John, Mitch McConnell has been playing the long game. He's been playing it for a long time, including that, you know, he stacked the Supreme Court. Now, he's weak in public institutions, and some consider, like myself, I consider him to be truly evil. But what's crazy is that he's now seeming like the same voice in the Republican eco-chamber. How do you think that history ends up judging Mitch McConnell, and more importantly, what do you think of him?
3: Well, you know, my thoughts are, are, are uh, uh, somewhat ephemeral. I, I think he is—he uh, uh, is a master of the Senate, and you have to admire his ability to run that machine like few have since Lyndon Johnson. Uh, he is—he knows how to make it work or not work to fulfill the goals of the Republicans. I have a lot of fundamental problems with the Senate as an institution. It is totally undemocratic. Uh, it is a, an anachronism in a modern democracy and it needs a lot of work that, uh, it may or may not ever get. Uh, and it could well help bring the end of our, our cherished system, uh, because of its deep flaws and, uh, uh, starting with a filibuster, but that's a that's a whole other program. As far as Mitch McConnell and uh, you know what he has uh, accomplished or not accomplished, uh, it is pretty remarkable. Uh, he has stacked the Senate. I'm me, the Supreme Court using the Senate. Uh, he did block Obama from appointing uh, Merrick Garland, who would have never become Attorney General. Well, he can't say that. You, uh, people, uh, you know, they, they have gone from attorney general to the court. I suppose a president, if he asked somebody to come off the court to be attorney general, might consider it. Uh, interesting question. But anyway, I um, I think that the ability of Mitch McConnell to get his way has been very striking. Now, the fact that yes. he is the same voice, I think is pretty Typical of his politics, which have been uh, pretty, you know, pretty hard right, but not not extremism and not radical. And the radicals are, of course, running the house through Kevin McCarthy. I mean, this is the Freedom Caucus that has taken charge. These are the Tea Party people who have found longevity in their next iteration, and they're all nuts. I mean, they're just literally nuts. They don't. They're not people who respect democracy. They're not people who uh, have any admiration for the system. They're not people who really want government to work. They're just the opposite. They're they're a lot of performative politics. Uh, a lot of uh, uh, desire to uh, make noise and draw attention to themselves. They they uh, uh, they are. They really don't belong in the government because they don't want to do anything to make government work. They want to. Republicans of uh, this ilk have long wanted to rule. They don't want to govern. Uh, governs, a, governing's a lot of work. Uh, ruling is their first instinct. So uh, I think that Mitch is not in that club, and he. So that makes him sound like a middle of the road sound. Uh, wise old man
0: well that's one way certainly to look at it I mean he's been for lack of a better term he's been quite successful it's just hard for me to imagine that he's the same voice now on the same theory I'm a supporter of President Biden and I think under all of the circumstances he's doing a pretty decent job he's certainly doing the best that he or anybody could do Under the circumstances, how would you rate the president's performance thus far? And do you think that he should run in 2024? Now, assuming that you say no, he should not, who would be the alternative?
3: I think Biden's been a great president. Uh, You know, I know how difficult it is to, to make the government operate from that seat on Pennsylvania Avenue. Uh, I have studied the presidency before I worked there, I've worked there, I've been on the inside, and I have followed it closely since I left. Uh, It is the the toughest job in Washington. He has done a remarkable job under the worst of circumstances. His legislative accomplishments, his first two years, are stunning. Uh, People just don't, they're terrible for some reason at pounding their own drum and letting the world know what they have done. The Infrastructure Act uh, is uh, the most important domestic legislation since that of the Eisenhower administration. So he is uh, he's just quietly working his will. He understands how the Senate works and knows how to to play it, and he can have private when you've known somebody as he knows Mitch McConnell for decades, he can pick up the phone and have a conversation, Michael. Unlike uh, you and I can even have. We have not known each other that long. We have not, uh, you know, these guys have helped each other for uh, for mutual benefit for a long time. We don't even know the 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 chits they have for e- from each other. But you can be sure they're there. And and Joe has has uh, effectively used his his skills to accomplish an awful lot. Now I think his. His handling of Ukraine has been cautious. Uh, his foreign policy that he was stuck with in getting out of Afghanistan uh, was less than beautifully executed, but done because he really had no choice at that point. But I I think he's going to go down as a great president. Uh, with my only issue and uh, that I hear everybody raise is his health and his age. Well, Before, his age, yeah. I, I'm four years older than him, and I know I know how active I am. I know how I feel, I have no problems physically or mentally, and I don't see that as being a handicap for him. If he feels up to it, by God he should go and, and take on another four years. Uh, I think he's you know uh, he's got the ageism, but he can hit that head on. It is no, no question that people, uh, worry about old people running important institutions and there's none more important than the presidency but i think he if he feels up to it he's not gonna he's smart enough to not take it on unless he uh he knows he can do it he sure. knows he can do it and you I know think- what's
0: amazing you're you're right you're, you're right john because you know i read this article that said that it's like the 23 accomplishments of the of Joe Biden in the 24 months that he's been. It's almost like one accomplishment a month. I mean, I can't, I can't even think of one accomplishment for Trump other than taking apart things like the FDA and other things. But people forget. What about lowering the health care and the drug costs under the Inflation Reduction Act? I mean, how huge is that, you know, for people Climate change, something that he keeps talking about over and over, saving families money on energy and so on. Then they talk about you know the most consequential federal um, gun safety bill in decades. You know that that you know that and that was bipartisan, which is fantastic because it goes to your point that he has the ability to work across the aisle, right? Then the largest ever national investment in mental health. I think he's doing like $10 billion or something like that. Then the cancellation of the federal student loans for tens of millions of Americans and so on. And you're talking about, as you said, the uh, infrastructure bill, the investment in American industry and manufacturing. Nothing made me happier than when they were talking about that infrastructure bill. When Joe Biden turned around and said, made in America, for American infrastructure. I mean, what a great thing that is. That will end up putting everybody back to work with who, even though we're, what, at 2% unemployment, everybody can have a high paying job. So good for that. But you know, John, as we, as you know, the hour, as I always say on this show, the hour goes by very, very quickly. And I have one last personal question for you. I know that you wrote a book on Warren G. Harding, who many considered the worst president until Donald Trump came along. But you also wrote scathingly about George W. Bush, comparing Harding, Bush, and Trump to one another. What are their similarities? And then, of course, the million-dollar ending question, who's the worst president in U.S. history?
3: Well, let me start with your last question. Who's the worst president? Without without hesitation it's donald trump he's the most incompetent man to ever sit in the oval office he had no knowledge of the presidency had no knowledge of government he's a man who could not only not pass a civil service exam he couldn't pass the very exam that new citizens are given he has no knowledge or understanding of the way government works doesn't have any curiosity and it was all about donald it was a a branding Undertaking that uh, got out of hand and they didn't know what to do next and never have. And he's it's still now it's his ego that he lost. Uh, People enough people saw through uh, the facade of this presidency to realize there was no presidency. So Trump is the worst. Uh, I have written harshly about uh, Bush and Cheney. I always connect them because I think. Cheney led Bush by the ear uh, to do a lot of the things he might not have otherwise have done based on his own familiarity or lack thereof with the presidency based on his, his father's presidency. But Cheney really wanted to take on and, and build the power of the imperial presidency. That to me is dangerous. It's another way to say, let's have an authoritarian president this unitary executive theory that uh, conservative scholars bandy around, another way of saying, how do we create a dictatorship without a dictatorship? Uh, so I I was harsh on that before authoritarianism hit the air. I'm one who's written a lot about the negatives of authoritarianism and the personalities who these people really are. Uh, Trump is, of course, a, a classic authoritarian. He's a poster boy for what an authoritarian... Uh, is like in government. Who is the way? So he's I'm just, no question, the worst president. As far as Warren Harding, uh, I grew up in Harding's hometown. Uh, and they used to deliver papers along Main Street. We were off Main Street. So I used to pedal by his house uh, with great regularity long after he had gone. I didn't know much about uh, Harding uh, as a kid. Uh, but the first book I read on the presidency was given me by his successor as the editor of the Marion Star, who lived next door to us. And it was a book uh, on the Harding presidency, which I read with great interest. Uh, and so he became my first president. I began following and realized that he may be the most maligned president we've ever had. And what happened is progressives, he was so popular when he died, died in office, untouched by scandal, incidentally, although he would have hung on him, uh, Teapot Dome as being his scandal when he knew nothing about it uh, and really had no uh, involvement in any corruption. Did he have a mistress? He had a couple uh that wasn't an unusual thing for men in any era uh so i you know I, it it's not clear how active his his uh his extramarital affairs were when he was president it it <laughs> looks like they were nominal if any it was beforehand before he became president that he had an affair one of which would produce and only recently was established uh through genetic testing, that it was indeed his child. Uh, So he has a great-grandson now uh, that lives up here in, I think in Oregon, uh, here in the West. But uh, if that is the man's worst sin, uh, he is certainly uh, in a big club. Uh, of, uh, well, he's
0: certainly better than Donald J. Trump who I will agree with you is so fucking stupid he couldn't pass a urine test but with that Sean let me say thank you as always it's very good to see you my friend it's your insight your historical perspective is second to none and I thank you for once again joining me on Mea Culpa.
3: Thank you Michael stay well. Great seeing you
0: and now for today's Mea Culpa Folks, black is now white, and lies are not ever going to be true. Despite what Kevin McCarthy and Marjorie Taylor Greene and all the other fucking insurrectionists in Congress are telling us, Biggs and Jordan and that fucking pinhead Josh Hawley, lies and their lies after their lies, that's now their currency. They have crossed the Rubicon when no more truth can be told. And I don't know how many times I will have to say this until the whole country gets it. But the 2020 election was not stolen. Not in any state. Not in Georgia. Not anywhere. No matter what the Harpy Green has to say about it, it was not stolen. Now Green has been given a platform by McCarthy to just say all the fascist lies that pop into her tiny little brain. Because she's now the face of the brand. And the brand is what else? The big lie. The GOP is gonna stick to its guns rather than come to terms with the insurrection. Instead, what do they do? They double down. Even with the recent Fox News revelations that it was all a lie, they're like, fuck it, we're still all in. And from the day Green arrived on her broomstick to Washington DC, she has been calling for civil war or a divorce between red and blue states. But let us not forget that she is an insurrectionist herself. Section three of the 14th amendment actually disqualifies insurrectionists from holding office. It basically states, if you have taken an oath to uphold the constitution of the United States and then engaged in an insurrection or rebellion against the government or given aid or comfort to our enemies, you're out of office. No way back. There's no fucking wiggle room. But when will we get to those cases? As long as McCarthy is speaker, the answer is never. It's clear as day that what McCarthy and Green are doing is a continuation of the insurrection at the behest of none other than Donald Trump. And as long as Trump is the clear favorite to win the nomination in 2024, they will not let up. Green is priming for more voter suppression in her state because the more that she pumps completely meritless, stolen election lies and claims, the more bogus laws are created to confuse and stop voters from doing what? From voting. And the GOP has been passing laws all across the country to fix our non-existent problems with voting. They are fixing the vote by preventing people who don't support Republicans from voting. I mean, it's simple. From book banning in Florida to drag shows in Oklahoma, they're tightening the noose, telling all of us what is normal and acceptable and what is not. And that is not normal. They are not normal. I read this in Steve Schmidt's Substack, the warning quote, and I'm going to quote it here. The great progress in America towards justice and equality should never obscure the sickening reality that when the Nazis looked for precedents to write the Nuremberg race laws, they found them in the miscegenation laws of the American South. And he's right Jim Crow was part of the blueprint for the Nazi movement. We are not as ethical, and as moral, as we pretend to be. We think we aren't vulnerable to the lies and despotism of the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Ron DeSantis and Kevin fucking McCarthy's because we seem so obvious. I mean, they all just seem so obvious and disgusting. But in fact, they are becoming the norm. Now, look, it's easy for us. We laugh at them today. We forget that they're trying to rewrite history and manipulate the votes, and we think that they're a bunch of fucking clowns. But here's the problem, my friends. Before we know it, the clowns have taken over the circus. And that's the problem. And that's what we need to stop. And as always, thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Minus Touch, and LSJ Media. Written by Jimmy Jelinek and Paula Killen. Our editor and managing producer is Lisa Orkin. Our executive producers are Jared Gustad, Jimmy Jelinek, and myself, Michael Cohen, along with Phil Alberstadt. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is still winning the war on the state and local level. Maya culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, I promise you, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth. This is my mea culpa. Yeah. Oh, baby,
1: don't lie for me. If I tell you my story, don't cry.